So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, we have something new, and it's a way to support this podcast directly, along with Canadaland's other two political podcasts. Now, if you listen to us on Apple's podcast app, you can get ad-free episodes of The Backbench, Wag the Dug, and of course, Commons, along with bonus content and ad-free archives for just $2.99 a month. The perks are great, but really, this is an affordable way to support this show directly along with the other great Canadaland political podcasts that are changing how politics are talked about in Canada and who gets to talk about them. This is how we're able to go weekly with the backbench. This is how we're able to make more episodes of Wag the Dug as Ontario's election heats up. And this is how Commons is able to get even more ambitious in the kinds of stories that we tell. So if you haven't subscribed to premium feeds and Apple podcasts before, they've made it incredibly easy. Just head to your library, click on the show page, and subscribe. And thank you so much. In the days before 9-11, Murid Zai and Moshin Amin were both living in Pakistan. They don't know each other, but both of them were victims of the ceaseless wars that have plagued Afghanistan. At the time, they were both refugees. Three and a half million people had fled the country since war had come to Afghanistan. One side of my returning back to Afghanistan was I was missing my country, my city, my home. It was a completely torn away country. That's more worried. She was in her 20s then, and though at the time she found Pakistan welcoming, she desperately missed her home, even though it was ruled by the Taliban. Every year I was traveling back to Kabul just to see my city. It didn't matter for me to wear the burqa, but I wanted, I was missing Kabul so much. And I was traveling once or twice just to see the Kabul and people and, and my city. Murwarid had once been a law student in Kabul. She had learned firsthand just how brutal the Taliban could be to women like her. Her family fled the city. Moshin was younger than Murwarid. His family was from Nangarhar, a province close to the Pakistani border. But he had grown up in a refugee camp across that border. Very difficult life of a refugee in Pakistan. Went through a lot of hardship in the young age. Pakistan's where he grew up, but he did get to see his homeland occasionally. I remember I visited Afghanistan two times during the Taliban regime in, uh, in the late 90s. And so even as a boy, he got to see what a theocratic regime looked like firsthand. 
Yeah, you remember the Ministry of uh, Propagation of uh, Virtue and Prevention of Voice were roaming around streets in uh, cities, seeing what's the uh, measurement of somebody's beard and what is the burqa or hijab of women. Once the Taliban were toppled in 2001, both Murwarid and Moshin's families returned to Afghanistan. Murwarid had been working for an international NGO, and she was one of so many Afghans returning from abroad determined to help rebuild her country after two decades of civil war and years of international isolation. Infrastructure from services, social services, from economy, political structure, everything was thrown away like it was completely destroyed. This is the time that country needs me more. And I returned back just right away after fall of Taliban in uh, late 2001 back to Kabul with the hope that I will be one of the human forces that will rebuild my country, my city. She moved back to Kabul and tried to do just that. I will be there to help them to uh, to fulfill their dreams, to return to school and, and uh, to, to just change everything. For Moshin's family, though, it was different. They were also excited to come home to Afghanistan, but they were from a rural corner of the country. When we returned back, we were excited that there is an opportunity. But that also came sort of like uh, out of naivety. When Moshin's family got back to the region of Nangarhar where they were from, they saw devastation. Many of the villages were bombed brutally by the NATO forces, by the U.S. forces. They were constantly bombed. Their homes were raided. They were imprisoned without any fair trial or legal process. And they were tortured in prisons like Bagram, in Kandahar airfield, and some were sent to Guantanamo Bay. For a woman like Murwarid, who grew up in Kabul, and who had been cruelly denied education by the Taliban, the Western occupation that began in 2001 meant hope. It meant liberty. But for many of the people from Moshin's rural communities, it meant the opposite. Imprisonment, torture, killings. In their different ways, Murwarid and Moshin were both victims of Afghan history. Their stories help us understand how the country was pulled apart by the forces of war and occupation. But in the West, in Canada, we rarely ever acknowledge the truth of both of these stories. This is the dichotomy underlying the two-decade-long war in Afghanistan. And it's one that has never been solved. History has a way of repeating itself. Nowhere is that more true than in Afghanistan. Over the last 40 years, the country has been subjected to cycle after cycle of invasion, civil war, and religious repression. Every time outsiders have come in, they make the same mistakes as the ones who came before them. In the first year of the occupation, Canada presented itself as a peacekeeper. But the truth is much darker. What we did was kept secret for years. Some of it was even kept secret from the Prime Minister himself. And Canada's role, especially in the early days after 9-11, would have profound consequences for decades to come. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canadaland, 
This is Commons. The misdeeds that Canada participated in during the first years of the invasion weren't inevitable. They were the result of the profound ignorance of policymakers and military strategists about Afghanistan. Right away, it became painfully obvious that we didn't understand the country, its people, or its history. The only thing to realize is this, is that any of us from Western countries, the one thing that you soon discover is that every time you're fortunate enough to return to Afghanistan, you begin to realize a little bit better how much you still need to learn, how little you comprehend. My name's Arthur Kent. I've been a journalist since the, the early 70s. The story of modern Afghanistan is one of almost unending war. For 40 years, the country has been ravaged by armed conflict, punctuated by only moments of peace. And during all of that time, Arthur Kent has been reporting from the country, trying to make sense of it all. He says that over the years, global interest in Afghanistan waxes and wanes. But even when people stop paying attention, the troubles in Afghanistan always have a way of shaping global events. Imagine you're a surfer in Hawaii, covering Afghanistan, trying to make sense of Afghanistan, of the conflicts, of all the seasons of war, of all the stages and iterations of civil war and superpower rivalry and proxy war. It's like being a surfer, bobbing out there in the water, and you're looking for that wave, and it's not coming, it's not coming, and that's how little attention is paid. But you know that there's a championship riding wave coming. You know it's going to happen. Before 9-11, you could divide the modern history of Afghanistan into three major phases. The Soviet invasion and occupation in the 1980s, the civil war in the first half of the 90s, and Taliban rule until 2001. During each of these times, Afghanistan has been a proxy battlefield for global and regional powers. And over and over again, the same errors are made. It's the mistake that's always made trying to solve the problem with money and guns, when money and guns demonstrably only make things worse. And the people that are empowered by these outside forces are more often than not the worst of the worst. If you had to point to a year that changed everything for Afghanistan, you'd have to go back to 1978. At the time, a communist coup overthrew the autocratic dictator of Afghanistan. The new regime instituted radical reforms and disappeared tens of thousands of people in an attempt to strengthen their power. This inspired mass revolts, especially in the rural parts of the country, threatening the communist hold on the government. So in December 1979, at the request of the Afghan communist government, the Soviet Union sent in the Red Army. Soviet troops fought pitched battles in the streets of Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan today. It was part of a successful effort to replace a pro-Moscow president of Afghanistan with a new leader who's even more pro-Moscow. The Soviet Union has sent tanks and helicopter gunships to help crush the Muslim rebels. It's now thought to have about 10,000 troops in Afghanistan. Morwarid Zai was a young girl living in Kabul when the Soviets arrived. 
I was really, really young. And I remember when war started, I was in my aunt's house and she tried to keep me safe and secure in a corner of the house that, that she taught me be, this is the best place for me to hide. And that scene, that incident never gone away from my mind. I always carry that. I could see that fear in my aunt's eyes of keeping me safe from something that I didn't know. I always have that in my mind. I always see that fear, and I always remember that fear in my aunt's eyes. For millions of Afghans, the next decade would be filled with brutality. On one side was the communist government, backed by the full might of the Red Army. And on the other were a variety of resistance groups, mostly based out of rural Afghanistan. The leaders of these groups all had different aims and politics. Some claimed to be pro-Western Democrats, Others were Muslim fundamentalists. It was these men, these warlords, as they came to be called, that would help shape the next 40 years of Afghan history. There were dozens of these warlords. But four of them in particular, I think, illustrate what went wrong in Afghanistan. The most prominent of the more liberal-leaning warlords was a man named Ahmed Shah Massoud. Massoud is one of the 20th century's most legendary guerrilla fighters and has been hailed by some as an Afghan national hero. In 1986, Arthur Kent went to visit him in his hideout in the Hindu Kush mountains. It was uh, epic crossing the Hindu Kush in the springtime. You'd think you were walking into Shangri-La, beautiful mountains of Nuristan, these roaring torrents, the rivers and the valley bottoms, green pastures rich farmland and extraordinary 15,000-foot mountain passes. They would climb in the middle of the night to try to avoid the inevitable avalanches that would happen as the snow warmed in the sunlight. He eventually made it to Massoud's camp and met the man himself. And it was like, you know, here, here it was, 1986. So I'm, what, 33 years old? But, hey, I've now met Jesse James and Che Guevara all in one person. He's an extraordinary person, charismatic, thoughtful, extremely smart. Most of all, he, he was highly respected. He'd earned the trust of, of the local people. So his, his guerrilla front was the strongest and most effective in the country. Throughout the 1980s, the CIA began to funnel arms and money to Afghan Mujahideen fighters as part of a strategy to bog down the Soviets. But almost none of that made its way to men like Massoud. Instead, the United States was providing huge amounts of weapons to others, including two of the other warlords I think you need to know, Gulbuddin Hekmatar and Jalaluddin Haqqani. Gulbuddin Hekmatar, uh, to us this uh, exotic, tall, bearded, principled, uh, scholarly, but rugged guerrilla commander. Well, within years, we found out that he was a murderer, that he was ruthless in terms of suppressing more moderate, more liberal, less religiously dogmatic components of the Afghan resistance, nationalist Afghan guerrillas who wanted to create a really coherent and successful nation in Afghanistan. Hekmatar would go on to become one of Afghanistan's most prominent opium traffickers, all while he was receiving American aid. Jalaluddin Haqqani, meanwhile, was one of the CIA's most valued assets in Afghanistan, receiving tens of millions of dollars and powerful weapons such as Stinger missiles. 
Connie was an, an arch-religious, Saudi-oriented Afghan resistance leader. But despite the massive American support, years later, Haqqani would go on to ally himself with the Taliban. And during the NATO occupation, the Haqqani network was responsible for some of the deadliest attacks against Westerners. Both Gulbuddin Hekmatar and Jalaluddin Haqqani became patrons to a young, wealthy Saudi who had come to Afghanistan to fight the Soviets, Osama bin Laden. I think the important lesson is this. You know, what we've seen over and over and over again, and we saw it first in the Soviet war. The Soviets invade. Well, they escalate. That's a major escalation. But then the United States, Britain, France, the West comes in and pours all sorts of money and guns. And that intensifies and escalates. And it was no accident that by 1988 and 1989, you were seeing the extremists feed on that. The Soviet occupation of Afghanistan was unbelievably bloody. By the time the Soviets gave up and quit Afghanistan after nine years in February of 1989, so many Afghan women and, and children and men had, had been killed that the world could only estimate, well, we know it's at least a million, but it's likely a million and a half, although it could be two million. Imagine there being a margin of error of a million people. That's how bad it was. Much of the bloodshed was in rural Afghanistan, but in Kabul, life was relatively peaceful. Here's Maureen Zai again. I have to say that I have lots of good memories of Kabul. Kabul is the city I love the most. It's my city, and uh, there were really good days. There was all the possibility for children to go to school, to play outside uh, without fear of being bombed or kidnapped or killed on the street. Just as with the Americans many years later, thousands of Soviet civilians lived in the city, mostly in heavily fortified housing complexes. Women's rights were promoted throughout the country, and education for women and girls in the cities advanced considerably. The Soviet project in Afghanistan would come to an end in 1989, but the violence was far from over. The Afghan communist government clung onto power, largely through the strength of one man, the last of the warlords I want to tell you about today, Abdul Rashid Dostum. Dostum was an ethnic Uzbek from the north of the country and the most feared military leader on the Afghan communist side. And his militia was absolutely bloodthirsty, hunting down Mujahideen, Afghan resistance and the anti-Soviet resistance. Arthur Kent met him many years later at the Intercontinental Hotel in Kabul. He and his guys were drinking a Texas Mickey of five-star whiskey. He was a boozing uncivilized, undisciplined killer for the Soviets. When the Soviet Union fell in 1991, Dostum saw the writing on the wall and defected from the communist government. And the next thing you know, he's becoming one of the warlords. Now, he fights them, he's guilty, he crosses the line back and forth, but he's really fighting for himself. Dostum's defection was the last nail in the coffin for the Afghan communists. The communist government fell, and with that, the world stopped paying attention. 
The Soviets were long gone, and so the Americans, they had no more reason to remain interested in Afghanistan. The warlords were now in charge, and all of them were armed to the teeth with modern Western weaponry. Civil war was inevitable, and once again, the war came. This time, Kabul wouldn't be spared. I saw the, my city and the whole country tearing apart when Mujahideen entered Kabul. That was the worst nightmare I had, and I couldn't imagine to see Kabul falling apart that badly. Like 90% of the city was broken. This was the first experience of seeing the war, the active war inside the city. On one side was a Mujahideen government with Ahmed Shah Massoud, the more liberal of the warlords, serving as defense minister. And Gulbuddin Hekmatar, the U.S.-backed Islamist and drug trafficker, was one of the men opposing him. Hekmatar, who had received so many weapons from the CIA, turned all of those onto Kabul itself. He bombarded the city with rocket attacks, destroying entire neighborhoods, killing tens of thousands of civilians. Every opposition group, every Mujahideen group was fighting or taking shelter behind uh, people's houses. And uh, that was the time that the city completely um, was destroyed. And, and I remember one of the Mujahideen leaders said at that time that Kabul, uh, because of the Soviet re regime, the Kabul people has been uh, infidels and they need to be washed with blood to become pure. Other warlords, like Dostum and Haqqani, joined the fight, each out to carve themselves a piece of the country. The warlords, they were still fervently independent of one another. They were divided along tribal, ethnic lines, religious lines, but they were all armed to the teeth. The West and the Russians having armed the warring parties to a degree that I don't think has been seen in a civil war anywhere else. And, and we were surprised. Oh, we're shocked and horrified. The Civil War decimated Kabul, reducing the population from 2 million to 500,000. Refugees streamed out of the country, and all of the violence gave rise to a new group, one that would oppose all the others. And eventually, it would capture the entire country. The Taliban. Before the Civil War tore Kabul apart, Murwarid Zai dreamed of studying law and becoming a lawyer. And it looked like that dream might become a reality. One year after I, I was at the, at the university, Mujahideen Group came and they shattered my dream. Like they closed the university for a couple of years because of war. And I couldn't believe every day I was waking up with the hope of today they will announce that we can return back to university. It took three long years, but finally, the schools reopened and Murwarid was able to resume her studies. But then one day, she got to class and noticed something strange. I remember that day I was at the university and it was unusual because it was so empty. 80% of students and teachers were not at the university. Even among the few who showed up, almost none of them were women. So Morid went back home, and the next day, Kabul was under the control of the Taliban. 
Next day, they announced that women and girls can, can't go to school and university. Murray didn't know exactly what the Taliban were all about, but she had heard rumors. I knew that these are not like ordinary soldiers. We heard of their torture uh, and uh, brutal acts against civilians they committed in other provinces. She decided to be cautious. And I went to my friend's house to collect my notebooks with the hope of that someday the university will reopen and I need them. So I was fully covered from top to bottom and uh, even my face. But they stopped me on the street. Even though she was fully covered, that wasn't enough to save her. They lashed me out for being on the street without a man from my family, without not wearing burqa. I was probably one of the few first women who who got Taliban's lashes uh, in the first days they arrived. I don't know how to describe it. Shocked, anger, frustration, frightened. I was grown up in a family that my dad never told me anything harsh. She gave me all the the right that I I should have. And someone on the street, a man on the street, is beating me. That was, I, I can't explain, like, how how hard was that? You know what, until now, I, I, I just feel that pain. It, they, they lashed me under my back. Physically, it's gone, but mentally, on my soul, it still remains. I can't forget that lash. I can't forget that beating. And, and sometimes I feel, I, I wish I had, I, I had the power to get to him back and, and fight back. But I wasn't, at that time, I wasn't thinking of anything except for escaping from the scene, reaching to my family, and crying. Murid's family would be one of millions that would flee this new militia that had taken over Afghanistan. The Taliban were formed in Kandahar in 1994 by a young Mujahideen fighter and Islamic scholar, who went by Mullah Omar. And he quickly found thousands of people willing to join his fundamentalist cause amongst young Afghans studying in religious schools in Pakistan. The root word Talib means student. And when you sit with a Taliban scholar, I'm telling you, watch out, because in 10 or 15 minutes, he could be turning you around. A Talib scholar, he's going to study Islam, he's going to study the Quran, he's going to study Quranic literature. He's going to grow up in a madrasa. The young Talibs who were the core of the fighting force that took Kabul in 1996, these are kids who'd known nothing but war. These schools were funded by Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the United States. These young guys knew nothing but militancy, knew nothing but violence, were taught that the rifle was the only machine they'd ever need. Because of their discipline and the support of Pakistan, the Taliban were able to sweep aside all of the warlords who had been ravaging the country during the civil war. And the Taliban victory brought some modicum of peace to Afghanistan. By 1996, they controlled more than 80% of the country. All that eluded them was the north of the country, where some of the warlords, including Abdul Rashid Dostum and Ahmed Shah Massoud, had fled. But that peace came at a price. The Taliban instituted one of the most strict theocratic regimes anywhere in the world. Arthur Kent went to visit Kabul under Taliban rule and to shoot a documentary with hidden cameras. Kabul had become a very quiet city. 
because Western sanctions had really bit deep. Very little traffic. No reconstruction. It was still war-ravaged. People lived largely in peace, but always under the threat that if their beard wasn't correct or if a woman went out without appropriate covering, they were going to get caned. They were going to get arrested. They were, they were going to be, suffer beatings. That horrific examples of execution, arbitrary execution were taking place, for instance, against any gay Afghan men unfortunate enough to reveal themselves. In the countryside, ethnic and religious minorities were being severely persecuted and sometimes massacred by the orthodox Talibs. Some of the warlords, like Jalaluddin Haqqani, who had once fought the Taliban, switched sides and allied themselves with the group. And while the Taliban held on to power, they were largely isolated from the rest of the world. Almost six million Afghans had fled the country. Few news outlets even bothered to report on what was happening in Afghanistan. Of course, all of that would change in September 2001. Arthur Kent knew that something was profoundly wrong two days before September 11th. That day, he'd heard from sources in Afghanistan that Ahmed Shah Massoud, the fervently anti-Taliban warlord who still controlled much of the North, may have been killed in a suicide bombing on the orders of Osama bin Laden. Massoud had spoken to the European Parliament a few months earlier, warning that bin Laden was planning some kind of attack against the West. The morning of uh, Tuesday, September the 11th, here in Calgary, just as it was in New York, a brilliant blue sky morning. And I was on a computer and I looked across the front room and there on the television was smoke coming out of the Twin Towers. He drove across the border and got on a Learjet to Washington, D.C. And I stood there looking at the Pentagon, smoking ruin. And I remember I, somebody wanted me to do a live, live shot. And I'd been, I'd been driving and listening to the radio. I was pretty surprised. Everybody's trying to figure out who did this. <laughs> and I said, can't you see? This is an Afghan war ruin. The Pentagon is an Afghan war ruin. This is an extension of the war. Soon, the world would learn the truth. The 9-11 attacks had been planned and perpetrated by a terrorist network based in Afghanistan. The world hadn't been paying attention to the country for many years, but now it would be the center of the world's attention. In the days after 9-11, the U.S. government demanded that the Taliban capture and extradite Osama bin Laden. They refused. Maybe it was out of loyalty to the man who had once been an acclaimed anti-Soviet fighter. Maybe it was payback for the assassination of Ahmed Shah Massoud, the Taliban's main enemy. Or maybe it was just stubbornness. But whatever the reason, the choice was disastrous for the Taliban government. NATO invoked Article 5, the alliance's self-defense clause, for the first time in its history. The Taliban were now up against the most powerful military alliance in the world. In October, the invasion began. And while American and British troops were on the ground, the West depended heavily on some of the same warlords that had ravaged Afghanistan in the past. Warlords like Abdul Rashid Dostum, the heavy-drinking former communist. He became a leader of the anti-Taliban resistance, the other resistance fronts begrudgingly 
had to say, well, better he's on our side than on their side. Once again, instead of the US military and the CIA distinguishing among, okay, well, there's the black hats and the white hats among our allies here. They didn't do that. They didn't do that with Dostum. They let Dostum run free. A combination of aerial bombardments and ground attacks quickly swept the Taliban aside. But for Dostum, that wasn't enough. In December, his men massacred somewhere between 250 and 2,000 Talibs that they had captured. Many were shot. Others were stuffed into steel shipping containers and locked in. They died by suffocation. Dostum would go on to have a very successful career in Afghan politics, eventually rising to be the country's vice president. And across Afghanistan, Western forces relied more and more on these warlords. There had been missions where helicopters were tasked out of Bagram Air Base, American helicopters, to fly out and meet regional warlords and deliver Rubbermaid trash barrels filled with $100 bills, with cash, U.S. cash, from the Treasury. It was the same old story. And while in some places it was brutal warfare that defeated the Taliban, in much of the country, people simply kicked them out. Take the village of Band-e-Timur. It's just west of Kandahar City. People in the area had once supported the Taliban, but in 2000, the Talibs banned opium cultivation, the primary crop for the local farmers. So when the invasion came, local elders and tribal chiefs decided to side with the new government and simply forced the Taliban to leave. The village leaders welcomed in aid workers, handed over 15 truckloads of weapons that they'd confiscated from the Taliban to the government, and even convinced hundreds of Taliban soldiers to switch sides. Band e Timur was an example of everything the West hoped would happen with the invasion. But that wouldn't last for long. In a few years, the villagers of Bandi Timur would become some of the fiercest Taliban loyalists. And the reason why has everything to do with Canada. So let's talk about Canada's role in the first phase of the war in Afghanistan. Before 9-11, the Canadian military had been struggling. Well, in the 90s, the Canadian forces went through uh, a real rough period in the sense that uh, uh, there was the Somalia uh, scandal where uh, Canadian airborne soldiers tortured to death. A Somali teenager photographed it. There was a, an inquiry that went for years and it exposed a lot of wrongdoing and competence in the Canadian forces uh, leadership in particular. That's David Puglesi. He's been reporting on the Canadian military for the Ottawa Citizen for decades. Then you kind of move into the, the late 90s, 98, where there's the big sex scandals. We're reliving that now, again. I think that's the third time. But in 98 was when McLean's really kind of opened up uh, uh, that issue. Women being raped, sexually assaulted, uh, women in the Canadian forces. The military complained about underfunding and equipment issues, and the institution found itself at a crossroads. Much of the Canadian public wanted it to be a peacekeeping force, but the military brass wanted them to be viewed as a capable fighting force, ready for active combat. And then 9-11 comes, and it boosts the statute of the Canadian forces in the public's eye. It also is a driver for a couple of things. 
won the expansion of special forces, Canadian special forces from a counterterrorism unit to do domestic hostage to a special forces unit that will go overseas. Canadian special forces, known as Joint Task Force 2 or JTF2 for short, were created in the 1990s as an emergency response team. And so they would be the national uh, hostage rescue unit. So if, if any, uh, you know, high profile uh, terrorist takeover or hostages were grabbed, the JTF2 would be used as the force of last resort to go in there and, and rescue hostages. But everything about JTF2 was secret. The government disclosed next to nothing about the unit. 9-11 comes along and they are sent overseas because it's, it's a quick unit to get out the door. In fact, historian Sean Maloney has alleged that Defense Minister Art Eggleton deployed JTF-2 soldiers to Afghanistan in October 2001. And he alleges that this was kept a secret from not only Canadians, but even from Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. And even when Eggleton finally acknowledged that JTF-2 was in Afghanistan, that we were already at war. He claimed that Canadians wouldn't be on the front lines or engage in any, quote, aggressive operations. And as we'll see, that was simply a lie. JTF-2 joined special forces from the United States, Britain, Australia, and New Zealand in operations in Afghanistan. These were called direct action missions, so they were going after Al-Qaeda, and uh, they grabbed a number of prisoners who could be Al-Qaeda, could not be Al-Qaeda, could be an Afghan farmer, whatever. I did um, a story, I think in the mid-2000s, where some of the people they, um, they captured, they grabbed on these raids, were sent to Guantanamo. And the Canadian attitude at the time is, or we hand them over to the Americans, and that's it. We don't follow where they are, what's happening to them. Over the years, little bits of information have come out about some of the operations that JTF2 was involved with. One of them stands out in particular, and it would significantly impact the next two decades of the war. It was a raid in May 2002 on a community just west of Kandahar City, Band-e-Timur, the same village that had kicked out the Taliban just months earlier. There was a raid on the village, it was in the middle of the night, Canadian Special Forces were involved, blew open the doors of the, of the compound. Houses were broken into, and women were thrown on the ground, tied up and gagged. Two Afghan men were shot and killed. Another was paralyzed. The district governor, a man named Haji Burget Khan, was shot and captured. He had been one of the men who convinced the other villagers to side with the Americans. Amidst the chaos, a six-year-old girl, Zarguna, fell into a well and died. After conducting a house-by-house -house search that took hours, all of the men in the village were rounded up. They grabbed all the men and they um, zip-cuffed them, as it's called, or zip-tied. They were taken onto a helicopter. All 55 of the village men were taken to Kandahar Airfield, thrown into cages, and forced to kneel, hands tied behind their backs. They were then taken out one by one, stripped naked, searched, and then their beards were shaven off, a particularly humiliating act for observant Muslims in Afghanistan. Haji Burget Khan, the local governor who had been shot, was never seen again. 
A secret JTF-2 dispatch stated that he was killed by a rifle butt to the head. So what exactly had warranted this raid? After all, this community had kicked out the Taliban and aligned themselves with the new government. Well, it turns out that the Western forces in Kandahar were relying on a local warlord. He had helped them capture Kandahar, and he had installed himself as the new governor. And he had wanted to take control of Band-e-Timur for his own personal profit. So he told the Western forces that the entire village were Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And because of this baseless information, an entire community had been targeted. Now the sad truth is that by early 2002, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda were completely spent forces in Afghanistan. They'd been utterly defeated. But the mandate of the special forces was to hunt down terrorists. And so when there were no terrorists to be found, Afghan warlords were ready and waiting to conjure some out of thin air. In the days after the raid, the American military called it a resounding success. When David Pugliese tried to get answers from the Canadian military about this raid, he got nothing. Canadian forces just says they deny everything. They say, we don't talk about this type of thing. I remember uh, questioning, uh, you know, Canadian Forces Public Affairs a person saying, well, you know, how do you know that this young girl died? You know, did you see the grave? And it's like, I didn't see the grave because I'm here in Canada, but that doesn't mean she didn't die. Years later, acclaimed journalist Anand Gopal visited the area where the raid had taken place. He went to the village and what he found is after that raid, those villagers, that whole area, there was a lot of support for the Taliban. There wasn't before. These people were minding their own business. And this raid appeared to be the catalyst for that area's uh, support for the Taliban. And the raid on Band-e-Timur had even deeper consequences. The men who were killed had been highly respected chiefs of powerful tribes that included millions of Afghans. Their names became rallying cries against Western occupiers. Moshin Amin, who you heard from at the top of the show, remembers when he returned to Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban. And he says that most of the Afghans he knew had no idea why these Western soldiers were in the country. It was unclear because the Taliban government was totally overthrown in 2002. And from there on, nobody knows what was the purpose of the uh, NATO or U.S. troops' presence in Afghanistan. He remembers many years later visiting his home village and talking to some farmers. And he asked them if they knew about 9-11, the event that led to their country being occupied once again. I specifically asked him that, do you remember the 9-11 attacks or the Twin Towers that were uh, collapsed? So they literally had no idea what I'm talking about. Back in 2001, I think 60% of the male population and over 95% of the female population in rural areas, they could not read and write, let alone having access to television or radio stations or internet. Because at that time, only 3% of Afghanistan had access to electricity. Without a television or a radio, how would an everyday Afghan in the rural countryside even hear about 9-11? But they did hear about what was happening around them. The bombings, the arrests, and the raids on places like Band-e-Timur by soldiers from Canada and the U.S. The Taliban 
had been defeated by 2002. How did they resurrect in fight back? This is a key question. In my assessment says that they, because of these raids, these imprisonment, in bombing, in just looking for the enemy, in creating enemies out of the civilian population. If there was one thing that 40 years of Afghan history should have taught us, it's that warlords don't have the interests of Afghans at heart, that they're out for themselves. But like so many before us, we fell into the same traps, and everyday Afghans suffered. They're the ones preyed upon for dominion. It really is the Afghan people who have suffered an enormous and almost unquantifiable penalty from these proxy wars and civil wars and religious wars and so on. Life for women like Murarid Zai, who was able to return to her home in Kabul, did improve dramatically. Women reached to the highest level of their education to completing their PhDs in very prestigious universities, returning back to Afghanistan to take part in building the country. Choosing to be a political leader or a political activist, a civil society activist, women rights activist, holding high level government positions, being involved in making policy at parliament, for example, or different ministry level. These were the, the progress that women made. And that progress would extend into the next decade and more. But it was built on a fragile foundation. Because for a few years, the Taliban were gone. But because of what was happening in the countryside, they would eventually return. And the consequences would be devastating for everyone in Afghanistan. On the next episode of Commons, the story of the first Canadians killed in Afghanistan and the unbelievable truth of who was responsible. I remember the blast, and I remember jumping out of the ambulance, and I remember just seeing this big cloud of smoke because the night was clear and I couldn't see you know, the stars except for beyond you know, the, the cloud. Then you hear the screams for, get the medics down here. And you're like, holy crap. And then you're wondering, well, what the heck hit us? That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can now support all of Canada Land's political podcasts, including Commons, Wag the Dug, and The Backbench for only $2.99 a month. And leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts while you're there. This episode relied on work done by Arthur Kent, David Puglazi in The Ottawa Citizen, Anand Gopal, John Stevenson in Metro Magazine, Dexter Filkins, and so many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, 
arshiacanadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Noor Azria. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.